You're going to find Matthew chapter 26 on page 985. So your Bible open, maybe something to write on and something to write with, and you're going to be in good shape this morning. One of my best friends from college is uh, named Mark. Uh, Mark and I went to school together in Oklahoma. Mark is originally from Carlisle, Mass., and today he lives in Fort Worth, Texas. And so when he heard that the Busbys were moving to New England, he lost his ever-loving mind. He was so excited and still is. Uh, uh, most of our conversations today consist of just him talking in high-pitched squeals. He's so excited that we live here. <clears throat> his parents still live in Carlisle. And so uh, the last few weeks, he just keeps telling me, you, you have to eat here, you have to go to this place, you have to see this thing, here's all these things you have to do. And at the top of his list, ever since we've been talking about this, uh, has been Regina Pizzeria. And so you've got to go, it's the best pizza on the planet, I'm telling it's incredible, you've got to eat it. And so this last Monday, we had the chance, we, we went downtown uh, to the north end, ate squeezed into Regina's, ate awesome pizza, and it lived up to the hype. It was great. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Regina's is good, but it's not, right? And then you fill in the blank, Domino's or whatever it is. (laughs) And, but you missed the point. This is, Regina isn't great to Mark just because he thinks it tastes good, but Regina is a place full of memories. He's been eating there ever since he grew teeth. And before that, his dad ate there his entire life. And before that, Mark's grandfather ate at Regina pre-World War II. And now when Mark comes back to visit family, he brings his boys to Regina. Four generations of Hamiltons have squeezed into that little place to eat pizza. So when Mark eats Regina, it's not just about the taste of the pizza. It's about the memories that are evoked. He eats and he remembers, and that's what makes this his favorite place on earth to eat. And what about you? You might have a food, a recipe, a restaurant that evokes these kinds of heart memories for you. That's your favorite place. I'll tell you mine, and if you want to judge me, I don't care. It's, it's, it's lame by comparison, but I love it. Look, my, my grandmother's potato salad recipe, it's, there's nothing fancy about it, nothing it's, it's probably like a hundred other potato salads, but whenever I eat her recipe, I, I go back to this small rural Oklahoma town and her kitchen and her living room. Uh, I'm transported. You probably have some food like that as well. It's food that feeds your soul, not just because of the taste, but because of the memories associated with it. Well, we've got a table in front of us this morning. Uh, on the front of the table, it says, This in remembrance of me. Now, that line doesn't come from our passage we're studying this morning. The Gospel of Luke records Jesus as saying this. The Gospel of John records Jesus saying, Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, re- recites Jesus saying these same words, Do this in remembrance of me. We come here today for a memory meal. It's a meal of remembrance. What makes this special is not the taste. What makes it special are the stories that come with this little bread and with this juice. These things feed our souls because of the stories attached to them. And so when you and I come to take the Lord's Supper, we're to do so with our minds engaged. 
with, with our memories working, thinking specific things. This is not a, an exercise of ingestion. It's, it's an exercise of emotion, mental facilities, uh, hearts handed over to Jesus. This is a place where we come to remember. And what is it that you and I are supposed to remember when we worship through the Lord's Supper? Here's my goal today. My, my goal in preaching Matthew 26, starting in verse 17, is, is this. I want you to eat and drink well. And for you to eat and drink well today, you have to remember Jesus in the full beauty of the benefits of the cross for the believer. What happens if you don't remember well and then you eat and drink? This could become cold, dead ritual very easily. Just our end-of-the-month routine. Or this could become, these could become magic pills. A magic bread, a magic beverage, and we eat it and magic things happen. And we deviate from the purpose and we deviate from the story that this table tells us of. So what I hope to do this morning, what I'm planning on doing, is showing you from our passage today three incredible, amazing, soul-lifting truths for you and I to remember as we eat the bread and as we drink the juice. Here's our setting. We started at the beginning of chapter 26 last week. Jesus and the disciples are in the capital city of Jerusalem. It's holiday season. The holiday is called Passover. Passover is a traveling holiday, which means if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would load up the family, you're going to take the trip to Jerusalem, and you're going to celebrate there in that place. Uh, This is a big deal, and, and Passover is a massive holiday, so think about perhaps Thanksgiving and Easter combined, that kind of religious weight, that kind of eating, that, that's what this holiday was for Jesus and his disciples and the people around him. But Jesus is a wanted man in Jerusalem. You remember this. There is a group of religious leaders that are conspiring to arrest Jesus in a secret way. They want to arrest him in secret because they don't want to create a scene. They don't want the, the visiting crowds to riot against them. They want to take him out secretly. They want to dispatch him. They want Jesus dead. Well, just so happens they find an ally in one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Judas Iscariot goes and meets with these religious leaders, and they formulate a plan together, and Judas gets paid 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over to these religious authorities. We pick up our story. It's Thursday evening when we start in verse 17, and it's time for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate this Passover meal, this traditional storytime meal And our passage is going to go this way. We start with the scene for the meal getting set. Next, we're at the meal, and Jesus makes a shocking statement. Second, still at the meal, Jesus makes a second shocking statement. Then after the meal, we'll go for a little after-dinner walk with Jesus and the disciples where Jesus makes one more shocking statement. And what I want you to see in all of this are some unbelievable things you and I are to remember when we come to take the Lord's Supper. Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to start in verse 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it's you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night, You will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So we have a broad view this morning of the Lord's Supper. And I want us to remember well and remember specifically so that this act of worship entails all that's possible. And so let me show you three amazing truths the Lord's Supper calls us to remember. If you're taking notes, first thing for us to remember at the Lord's Supper, is we remember God's plan of salvation. We remember God's plan of salvation. So simple, so vital, that you and I recognize when we eat and drink, God is the one who has brought all of this to pass. He's the one who is sovereign, the one with the plan, the one who has brought the gospel to you. So our story picks up. It's evening time. Jesus and the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal. And this is a festive meal. The Passover meal, uh, it, it tells serious stories of suffering and hardship for God's people when they were in slavery in Egypt. But the meal has a festive bend to it. It's, it's a family activity. Kids enjoy it. There's laughter because the stories point to a celebration. It points to the deliverance of God's people. So here's this meal set up, stories being told, this sort of liturgy being worked out among the people present at the meal. And it's in this setting that Jesus makes his first stunning statement. Look at verse 21. Jesus says in the midst of this meal, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now, you and I are so familiar with this story, we may read this and think, huh, I've read that a hundred times. But if we will slow down and put ourselves at the table with Jesus and the disciples, we'll recognize that this is a shocking thing for Jesus to say. One of you will betray me. And we're told the disciples then become very sad. They begin to say to one another or to him, they say, surely not I, Lord. The tone is changed from mirth to sadness very quickly. And then Jesus in verse 23 identifies his betrayer. Look at what he says. 
the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, this is where our experiences in Mexican restaurants do not help us translate this passage well. You and I have this vision. Jesus says, the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. We, we envision Jesus and Judas with tortilla chips, and they've dipped at the same time in the tiny bowl of salsa, or queso if you prefer. And that's not how this happened. They don't have little tiny bowls. At the time that Jesus says this, it does not seem that he and Judas have their hand in a bowl at the same time. The disciples are not thick. If Jesus had pinpointed Judas specifically in this moment, they would have picked up on it. But rather, in the first century, and as is common now in the Middle East, uh, the group eats from a communal plate, a community bowl. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that my betrayer comes from this group right here, from among the 12 of you. He's general, not specific in this moment. And it's alarming to the disciples They don't know who it could be, but each one of them is sure it's not going to be him. Jesus continues in verse 24. Look at what he says. He says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So Jesus first says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. In other words, disciples, all these things that are happening, my betrayal, that I've just told you about, my coming death that I've told you about multiple times, these things are going just as it is written. In in other words, God has said it just so. The events of Christ's betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection, these are not random happenings that the church would later speak meaning into. These are not random happenings that we would build stories around. No, this has forever been God's ordained sovereign plan. This is how salvation is going to happen. The Son of Man will be betrayed just as it is written in the Scriptures, just as God set things to be. So if you go way back to the book of Genesis, Before he says, let there be light, God knows what creation will cost him. He knows that sin will enter his creation. He knows that sin will devastate his people. And he knows what redemption will require. That he would come, be betrayed, die on a cross to bring salvation to people. Do you know what else he knew at the moment of creation, I believe he knew your name. And he knew that sin would rule in your heart. And he knew the devastation it would wreak in your life. And he knew what your redemption would require, namely that he would come and be betrayed and die so that you could be saved. The intersection of your soul with the gospel is not some random occurrence. It is the grace of God who has ordered your steps and only by his grace has put you in the path of the gospel and then awakened faith in you so that when you heard the gospel, you would believe the gospel. It's happening just as it is written. And that's beautiful. And that's wonderful grace. But there's a different shade of grace in this scene as well. We're given a warning by Jesus in verse 24. Look at what Jesus says. 
Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Who's Jesus talking about in this instance? He's talking about Judas. And Jesus makes it clear that Judas is going to fall under God's judgment for his betrayal of Jesus. Now, you might push back here and say, well, if this is happening as it is written, as God has ordained it, can Judas really be held responsible for his actions? If God said this is the way it's going to go and then Judas does this thing, Perhaps we should give Judas a little bit of mercy, a little bit of grace in this instance. But Jesus doesn't see Judas as some unwitting, robotic player in God's grand scheme. Judas is a man with a will. He's a man who makes choices, and he has chosen wrong in this instance. Jesus does not see Judas as a sympathetic character for any reasons. Rather, he sees a man who's under the judgment of God. So we may cringe at Jesus talking this way, speaking woes on a man who has rejected him. This is not how we like to think about Jesus. If you were here last week, I had a small Jesus figurine, and you push a button, and it speaks Bible verses. This is not one of the Bible verses that doll speaks. Because this verse does not jive with our cultural rhetoric. In our hyperbolic tolerance. We, we were uneasy with the Jesus who says things like this. But I'm telling you that this unsavory statement is a gift of profound grace from God. The warning here tells you and I how things really are with God. Those who reject Jesus will face a terrifying judgment. How bad will that judgment be on those who reject Jesus? Let's just say it would be better if they had never been born. It's awful. God's grace comes to us in ways that are gentle and in ways that are jarring. To wake us from our sinful slumber so that we would embrace the Christ who gave everything for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you not to treat this day lightly. God's plan is at work in your life. And you may not have understood it. You may not have seen it as such or interpreted it as such. It doesn't matter. He's God and and you're not. And, And even this very moment, he brings you here today at the intersection of your life and this gospel message to produce something in you, to awaken faith in you, that you would believe in the one who laid down his life for you. When our church takes this meal today, we've we got to remember God's the one who's working the plan of salvation in our lives. If you are a believer and you eat this meal today, you're going to remember God's the one at work in my salvation that immediately humbles us. We are not saved because we chose God. We are saved because he chose us. And not because he knew our potential, not because we're better than others, not because of ethnicity, nationality, politics, none of that. He rescued us because we were dead in sin, and otherwise we would not be rescued. Salvation is all of God's grace, none of my merit, none of your merit. This is sanctifying work. When we eat the bread, drink the juice, we are humbled that God is the one who has worked salvation on behalf of sinners like you and I. So we have to remember well today when we eat and when we drink, drink, we remember that God is the one who's working salvation. It's his plan. Here's the second thing for us to remember. 
We remember his death on the cross. Verses 26 through 30 spell this out very clearly in the words of Jesus. We remember his death on the cross. So Jesus and the disciples are in the midst of the Passover meal, right? It's, the Passover meal involves a platter with seven symbolic foods. And each of those symbolic foods tell a part of the story of God's people's time in slavery in Egypt and their deliverance. And so a story is told with these seven symbolic foods. There's also symbolic glasses of wine present as well. They represent different parts of the story. And so it's in the midst of this meal, this, this thing that Jesus changes the script in a dramatic way. In the midst of it, Jesus turns from the traditional observance and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. And then he pours the wine and he says, this is my blood. Now this was not normal speech, not in the first century, not in the 21st century. If you were at a Thanksgiving meal and a family member began to talk about food as body and blood, you would be put off by it, to say the least. And so this is a shocking statement by Jesus to the disciples. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's telling his disciples, look, this Passover event that's been so historically important for us is but a microcosm of the great deliverance that will come through my death. This thing that our people have celebrated for thousands of years, this deliverance event is just a foretaste. It it now is a symbol of this great deliverance that I'm going to achieve through my death on the cross. So Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Throughout Christian history, there's been a great deal of debate about how to translate those two lines. Just for the sake of clarity, I want to highlight for you what a few others believe and what we believe about this line. In the Catholic Church, this is my body, this is my blood is taken with hyper-literalism. And so when a priest in right standing blesses the elements, the wafer and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. Now, if you put it under a microscope, it's, it's still going to show up wafer and wine. But in its essence, it's transformed into the actual body, the actual blood. It's a doctrine called transubstantiation. And the belief is that when, when you ingest the, the body and blood of Christ, it opens a channel of grace that is so powerful, salvation is granted to the one who partakes in the meal. If we had to summarize it in a gross generalization, the summary would be eat and drink so you can be saved. A nuanced version of this is represented in Lutheran theology. Martin Luther really struggled with the phrase, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? Why would he say this is my body if it's not his body? But Luther couldn't go as far as his Catholic contemporaries and say this is the physical body and blood of Christ. And so instead, Lutheran theology teaches that Christ is present with the elements, above, beneath, around the elements of the Lord's Supper. It's a doctrine called consubstantiation. And in Lutheran theology, the avenues of saving grace are the spoken word of God, the act of baptism, and the act of the Lord's Supper. And so taking the Lord's Supper opens an avenue, a channel of saving grace for the one who participates. The summary statement would be much the same as the Catholic one. Eat and drink so you can be saved. There are many different nuanced approaches to understanding the Lord's Supper. Uh, 
we won't go through them all, but here's where our church lands on this. Though we are biblical literalists, we take this as symbolic language from Jesus, and I love that. Because here is Jesus in the midst of a symbolic meal. The Passover meal is a meal of symbolism. It's not a meal of, of elements transforming in any way. And in the midst of that symbolic meal, Jesus institutes a new memorial meal, a new symbolic meal, which points to the place where salvation happens. The bread and the juice for us is not an avenue of saving grace. Rather, the feast that saves is the feast of faith when we trust in the one who came and died and rose again. Salvation happens through faith and faith alone, not by works, not works of Lord's Supper, not works of baptism, not works of church attendance, not works of theological minutia. It is by grace, through faith, you are saved, and not by works so that no one can boast. So if we were to summarize our, our approach to this table, it would be eat and drink because you are saved. This is not a place to find salvation. This is a place to celebrate salvation. It's a meal for the redeemed. And why do we feel this way? Is it because we're anti-Catholic? No, we're not anti-Lutheran. That's not it at all. But when we see Jesus talk to his disciples in verses 28 and 29, he uses the table as a signpost to point them to the cross and the incredible benefits of his death. Look at verses 28 and 29. He, he, real quick, he rattles off four incredible, beautiful benefits of his death. Here's what his death at the cross accomplishes. First of all, his death is a new covenant. At the beginning of verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant. So this wine is his blood of the covenant. Now, God's people have always related to God through covenant relationships. In a covenant, there's a greater party and a lesser party. So God's the greater party, and we're the lesser party. The greater party sets the standards for the relationship. Here's what's required of the lesser party. Here's the benefits I will grant you. And if you deviate, here's the, here's the consequences that will come. God's people have always related to God through covenants. Jesus says this is a new covenant. He, he calls on language from the prophets, from Jeremiah. My blood is a, is a new covenant. And so now... Since God's people have completely destroyed the covenant with God, God in his grace will work something new. And now the bridge between God's mercies and our sinfulness is the death of Christ at the cross. The table is not the place where we find that. The cross is where we find God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. His death is a new covenant, a new relationship, and it is the center point for our relationship with God. Second benefit of his death, his death is vicarious. Again, verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It's poured out for many. He dies your death so you can live his life. He died in your place. The penalty that your sin requires is the penalty that he suffered himself in his flesh, lays down his body, his blood poured out for this very purpose so that you can live. Third benefit of his death, it brings forgiveness. Still in verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In order for God to grant sinners like us forgiveness, Someone has to suffer the wrath of God for our sin. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean or, or shoo our sin away. 
But in this instance, when our faith is in Jesus Christ, the penalty for our sin goes right here. And Jesus on the cross suffers the full unfettered wrath of God for my sin and for your sin. And since that wrath has been satisfied, now you and I have forgiveness and a right standing with God. Fourth final benefit of Christ's death, verse 29. He says to his disciples, I tell you, I'll not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So fourth benefit is death gives us a future with God. Verse 29 sounds kind of weird, but in short, what Jesus is telling his disciples is, look, guys, uh, this is the last time we're going to gather like this. The next time we gather this way, it's going to be in a place of indescribable glory. In my Father's kingdom, there will again dine together all of us. It's weird. We, We come to the Lord's table and we're told to remember. So we, we think back to remember, but verse 29 also calls us to look ahead to a future in glory with our Savior. We come to the table, we look back in order to look ahead, and his death gives us a future with God. So the table is where salvation is celebrated. Because even Jesus points his followers to the cross as the focal point where salvation is accomplished for those who will believe. So when we come to the table, here's how we remember. We we remember that salvation is all of God's plan. We remember also Christ's death on the cross and the incredible, beautiful benefits of that. Last thing we remember, we remember his sustaining power. Verses 31 through 35 highlight for us God's sustaining power of his children. Now, it may seem weird, to extend this story beyond that room in the Lord's Supper. At the end of the scene, Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn. They get up and they walk out. Verse 31, they're walking in the Jerusalem night. They're heading just outside of the city to a hillside orchard of olive trees. It's called the Mount of Olives. But even on this walk, Jesus continues his stunning statements and continues the subject matter of his death and resurrection. And so as they're walking in in the night air, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 31, this night you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus quotes scripture, calls on another Old Testament prophet. It's written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You know, early in Jesus' ministry, he's told his disciples this. It's recorded in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. You know what a good shepherd does? Good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm going to be struck. And when the shepherd is struck, do you know what's going to happen to the sheep? They're going to scatter. And that's what happens on this night. We're almost there. Jesus is struck. He's arrested. The disciples flee for fear of their own lives. But the shepherd does not flee. The shepherd doesn't take off. He's left alone, but he takes the strike on behalf of his sheep. It's a shocking statement. The disciples are all hot and bothered by it. Peter, in particular, steps up in his typical bravado. And look at what he says to Jesus in verse 33. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus counters, yes, you will. In fact, tonight, before the rooster crows, three times you'll deny me. Peter says, no, it's not going to happen. 
Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And then the other disciples pick up on Peter's bravado and they echo the same thing. I find so much of myself in Peter. Maybe you do too. Uh, he, he's sincere, although dense. He's often wrong, but never in doubt. And Jesus knows the real Peter. He, he knows that big words cover a frail faith. You and I, we like to think of ourselves as strong and capable. Like so many toddlers, we'll turn to God and say, I do it myself. And, and God will acquiesce to that. He'll let us do it ourselves. And when we inevitably fail, God is also good to pick us up and to clean us off and to do the work for us that we should have let him do in the first place. See, there's something Peter's missing here, something that you and I miss in this story as well. Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to desert me, but that's not where the story ends. That's not the full scope of Jesus' speech to them on this little walk. Look at what he says in verse 32. After I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus doesn't tell them you're going to desert me just to throw failure in their face. If you make verse 32 the highlight of this little scene, Jesus is equipping the disciples. He's preparing them. And he's telling them this is how this night is going to go. This is how these days are going to go. This is going to be an intense and and terrifying night. Guys, this thing is about to go to DEFCON 1. But when it does, don't worry. Because when I rise again, there's no doubt in Jesus. Not if I rise, not I might, or there could be another way. He knows how this is going to go. When I rise again, guys, I'll meet you in Galilee. We're going to get back together there. You you scattered sheep will join your shepherd in Galilee when I rise from the dead. Too often, you and I focus on the problem and not the provision. The problems seem huge, and the provision just gets eclipsed in the shadow of the crisis. And so we come wringing our hands, teeth clenched, drenched in worry, And we fling a feeble prayer to the sovereign, creator, omnipotent, eternally majestic God. And we say, God, could you really handle this situation? Could you do something here, perhaps? We focus on the problem. We forget the provision. But if the Father sent the Son to die in your place, don't you think he will also do every good thing that your life requires? If he will give us the son, surely he will care for us in every other situation. Here's what you and I do all too often. We, we have a problem. It's this big right here. And you and I, we, we see all of life through the problem. Everything's defined by this, even God. And so we make conclusions about God based on what we see in our problems. So here's our problem. Therefore, God must not be loving or kind or good or present, or real. What the Lord's table calls us to do is to trust in His provision and reverse this. And when we look at our problems through the lens of our Heavenly Father, who laid down His life and took it up again, 
all of a sudden our problems become much smaller, much more finite, and glory much more possible when God is providing for us in our moments of need. The table calls us to remember God's provision, that he helps his weak faith, big mouth children in every crisis, in every trial. Guys, you're going to scatter, but I'm going to rise again. We keep the resurrection in front of us in every crisis, every heartache, every tear, every funeral. We remember that Christ lives. This is not a myth. This is not fairy tales. We're not just hoping this is true. This is reality. The Lord's Supper is encouragement for every believer to trust in God's perfect provision in the face of every trial. So when we eat here this morning, here's three things for you and I to remember. We're going to take part in this here in just a moment. We want to remember God's the one who's working salvation in our lives. Two, we want to remember that the death of Christ on the cross comes with so many benefits. That's where salvation is found. Three, we want to remember God's sustaining power for his weak children. You come in here limping today, this is a place where we remember the strength God has on our behalf. Imagine this scene my wife tells me, Cody, go to the store, and when you go to the store, remember milk. And I say, okay, and I go to the store, and I come home without milk. And she says, I thought I told you to remember milk. And I say, I did remember milk. I thought about milk when I walked in the door, and when I walked down the milk aisle, and then when I checked out at the counter, and then when I, I was thinking about milk when I came in. You told me to remember milk. That's what I did. I remembered milk. <laughs> now, That's just silly because her instruction to remember has an expectation of action. It's not just a mental exercise. Remembering means doing. And so it is here at this table. For us, remembering is not just playing scenes in our head uh, of of the crucifixion and, and resurrection. Remembering is not merely a mental exercise. This remembering is action. So what action does the table call you to take part in today? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this could be a day of incredible action. If this is the moment, the place, the time in which Christ awakens faith in your soul, then your action today could be this. When we're all done here this morning, I'm going to be standing over here with our prayer team. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ and how we get there. Or you may be here today with a Christian that you know and you trust and you want to engage in that conversation with them. That could be the action to come, is that you would talk and you would pay attention to what God is working in your heart. If you're a believer this morning, there's no shortage of actions that might accompany us to this table. We, we don't come here just merely to eat. We don't leave communion in the room when we leave. We, this is not a place to just take communion. You and I are to come and live communion. So it might be right that you and I would have the mind of Christ when we come to this table, and especially when we walk away from this table, that we would come in humility, that we would put others' needs before our own, that we would pay attention to those we must forgive in our lives, that we would come ready to sacrifice, that we would pray for our enemies, political, national, personal, pray for our enemies, that we would care for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners, all vulnerable populations among us. Friends, we can't just take communion. We've got to live communion. It's a remembrance of action today for the body of Christ. May the memories of God's good plan, the death of Christ, 
and his sustaining power feed your souls today. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for using something as simple as bread and drink to remind us of truths that are eternal and infinite. Thank you for giving access to us to this act of worship in which we celebrate salvation that was won at the cross. Father, I ask on behalf of friends in here today that don't know you as their Savior that, that they would heed the warning. God, that they would be wooed by your abundant love for them. Lord, that they would trust completely, entirely in the death of Christ for their own salvation today. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith this morning that this would not be mere cold ritual, but God, we would enjoy the grace of this moment as we remember what you gave for us in the life you have saved us to. So strengthen weak knees this morning. Lord, put iron in our guts for the challenges we're facing, the trials ahead, those known and unknown. And God, let us dress ourselves in the mind and the life of Christ with this bread and this juice. Let us live communion so that we don't just leave it here in the room, but Lord, we take with us the memory of what Christ has been and done for us. Lord, we want you to be glorified in this moment as we praise your name for all you have done, all you have given on our behalf. Thank you for loving sinners like us. Thank you for granting us forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son as the substitute to pay the price for our sin. Father, we honor your name. We glorify your name. We praise your name this morning as we eat and drink to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.